All right. Well, yeah, bound for the promised land. It is going to be a joyful time when, when we inherit all the promises that God has, has, has destined for us, and that includes a land, which uh, we're going to look at some tonight. So if you would begin, uh, we're going to thank, so thankful for Tommy starting us, op- starting us off in numbers last week. He had a huge section. Again, I'm thankful they're, they're giving me these shorter ones. Uh, tonight we're going to pick up in chapter 10. And we're going to roll through chapter 12. So three chapters, not too much. Hopefully we can get through the content at least and look at um, what the Lord might have for us to learn from this book of Numbers. And as you're turning there, again, I, I like to just recommend some resources if you're interested. Um, the book of Numbers commentaries, I only have four of them tonight to share with you. And if you want to write, write these down. Feel free, or come up afterwards, and I'll and I'll, I can give you that information. But uh, this this series right here is 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 a good series on all books of the Bible, and it's much shorter. It's it's really good information, but it's not as thick and technical as a lot of uh, commentaries are. That could be um, challenging for some readers, but I think they've designed these for for possi- possibly just normal people, lay people in the church who may not want to go really really deep. Uh, but still want to study the book. So this is a this is a good one. I would I would point you to Tommy. Re- he referenced this Winham guy last week. One more, uh, the Book of Numbers. Timothy Ashley, the New International Commentary, Old Testament. Again, that's a faithful series uh, covering the whole Bible. But this one in particularly, it'll be a lot thicker than the first one. This, you saw, I had to do my own kind of edit on the. The, the author, but Jacob Milgram, this is uh, the JPS Torah commentary. Uh, it's, these are Jewish writers and, and rabbis, scribes who, not scribes, but uh, those who um, maybe a little more in-depth into the, the history of the Jews and the, the Hebrew text in particular. So this will be a big volume. Uh, it'd be some critical aspects to it, but overall still very helpful. Jacob Milgram, and then last... Um, the Preaching the Word series by Ian DeGuid, God's Presence in the Wilderness. This would be a lot uh, more focused on exegetical help uh, instead of technical probably, but, but really good, helpful, commended it to you. Um, the Book of Numbers, if you're there in chapter 10, uh, just want to r- remind you, uh, what is the Book of Numbers about? You see the Hebrew up there, Numbers Bamidbar, out beside it. In Hebrew, it's called Bamidbar, and it literally means in the wilderness. The ESV Study Bible would say that the theme of Numbers is the gradual fulfillment of the promises of Abraham that his descendants would be the people of God and they would occupy the land of Canaan. So certain key themes that you see throughout the book of Numbers we'll see is the land, descendants, covenant relationship with Yahweh, and then blessing to the nations. Now, some of you, um, many of you, like myself, we just could ask, as we're coming to a book of Numbers, even Leviticus last, um, before this, like, how in the world am I supposed to get anything from this? What's, like, it's, it's, much, it's very clouded for me, and it's, it's, it's difficult to see through uh, to, the, to the points that, that maybe you're seeing, you know, us as we're studying and preparing. So 
why do, should I just, why should I even waste my time in the book of Numbers? Well, it was pointed out when we preached through the text, and we're going to go back to it, but very briefly, I just want to point out, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says about this actual section in the Torah, the book of Numbers. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul writes these words, that these things happen as examples for us, so that we would not crave the evil things as they also craved. These things happen to them as an example that they were written for our instruction. So these things that happened, he's referring to the accounts in the Old Testament, particularly the book of Numbers that we'll read about and we're going to get into. So he's saying, look, they, there's a purpose for them. There's value in them. And it might be worth listening. It might be worth giving, uh, putting forth the effort so that we can get to know God better through the book of Numbers. Though it's challenging and difficult, it's worth it to get into it because Paul says, it's instructions for you. So that's just a brief point on that. We'll return um, and see how that applies to us a little more. Um, these books are not just giving us facts of the past. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and so on. But they're meant to have an effect upon our hearts. They're meant to direct our hearts towards the Lord, to move us, to change us. And so we pray that that would happen. Now Yahweh's promises to Abraham, if you remember... He regularly gave promises to the patriarchs. Abraham in particular, he says in Genesis chapter 15 that the sun was going down and a deep sleep fell over Abraham. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. What's that referring to? They, your descendants will be, will be strangers in a land that's not theirs. What is, he, what is he thinking about when he says that? Hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen. Egypt, your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs. That's Egypt, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I also will judge the nation whom they'll serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here. So while God's given Abram this promise, he's in the land. And he's telling him what's going to happen to his descendants. And he promises that, he says, in the fourth generation, guess what? They're going to return here. Oh, really? Well, guess what? That's what we're seeing played out. That's what's happening in the book of Numbers. These accounts, they're telling us what God has promised and they're being fulfilled. And so we've read through the, they entered into the wilderness in Leviticus um, and establishing the priesthood and the tabernacle and that, the, uh, the sacrificial system. So now we're seeing them move right along through the wilderness, continuing to the land of promise that he told Abraham he was going to bring his people to in Canaan. And I just find that amazing. The counts in Numbers, many of them parallel to stories in Exodus, just so you're aware. And also, and I'll put, uh, what's important for our section is that Numbers chapter 33, it, account, it recounts the journeys, the people's journeys from Egypt to Jordan, which was just before they are to cross over into Canaan. So right now, we're picking up in Sinai. It, does, it doesn't, doesn't cover necessarily from uh, Egypt up into where we're at, but he picks up in, where, in our text in Numbers um, 
at the Mount Sinai. And so chapter 10 is where we're at. Verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses, spoke further to Moses saying, make yourself, I'm sorry, we don't need to go over what Tommy went over. Um, Verse 11, now in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th of the month, the cloud was lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony. And the sons of Israel set out on their journeys from the wilderness of Sinai. So what is this cloud? He says, the cloud was lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony. Any idea what that is? What's he referring to there? A cloud being lifted up and moving. That's right. God's presence. The divine sign of Yahweh's presence with his people. And we... We see this in Exodus chapter 13 when it says Yahweh was going before them, the people of Israel, in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So that's right. He he manifested himself in this form of a cloud to lead and to guide his people. And that's repeated throughout the scriptures if you pay attention to God's presence and then the cloud. And so it's lifted from over the tabernacle of testimony. The sons of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of Sinai and the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. So they're moving out. And Tommy kind of explained a little bit of the pattern that around the tent of meeting. This, this picture is from the ESV Study Bible, which is a really helpful source, so I encourage you to, to look at it. If you, have that, if you have an ESV Study Bible, use it. It's very good. Um, but you see the tent of meeting up top, that section, and the tribes who are surrounded or the located position around the tent of meeting. Below that, if you can see, starting from the right to left, it might be hard. You see the tent of meeting in the middle and the red arrow pointing to the right, but that's the order of how they were to travel and journey through the wilderness. And the ESV Study Bible provides kind of a snapshot of what that might look like. We're not going to read the content, but that's what the rest of chapter, this section in chapter 10, as they leave Sinai, it's just explaining these tribes and the order that they were as they marched and as they journeyed, as they traveled. And it, it was so important that, get, that, again, the cloud is the one who led them, that Yahweh was the one who led his people. It's important for them to remember that they weren't traveling blindly, like some of our road trips when we set out. We no, have no plan. We just set out uh, without any sort of maps. Well, the road trip was led by the divine navigator of Yahweh, and uh, it was important for them to understand that. It was very crucial. They set out first by blowing the, tr- the silver trumpets as indicated in verses 1 through 4 that Tommy mentioned last week. I think, maybe. <laughs> uh, these silver trumpets alarmed the camp that we're, we're about to march. We're setting out. And that word set out, the sons of Israel set out on their journey, has the idea of pulling up, pulling out, moving stakes. It's, it's nomadic language. They're They're traveling. They're pulling out their, their, their uh, camp, and they're moving forward.
And they're moved out according to the commandment of Yahweh. See 13. They move out for the first time, verse 13, according to the commandment of Yahweh through Moses. Again, crucial that this be the case. And they're not, no one is uh, taking it upon their own initiative to say, hey, we're leaving. It's time to go. Gather your things. Pack up. We're out. That would have been a bad move. <laughs> Somebody would have done that, even Moses himself. They realized Yahweh was the one who led this, this camp. He's the one who called the shots. He's the one whose word is what they live by and abided by. And so it's important that they don't move unless he moves. And so that's key. Verse 21, we see that they're carrying the holy objects in the tabernacle was set up before their arrival. This is important that the holy objects that were in the Ark of Testimony included the table of the bread of presence, the lampstand, the altar where sacrifices were made. You may be familiar with some of this in Leviticus. But Numbers chapter 4 tells us that these were the duty of the Kohathites, which is what's mentioned in, chapter, in verse 21. And so they're the ones who were to gather these. Like Tommy pointed out, they, each tribe and people, they had duties, they had roles, they had responsibility that they were to fulfill in order for the people to function properly and appropriately and so they had they each had their own task and it was an important task and so the Kohathites had the holy objects that were connected to the tabernacle chapter 10 still verse 29 Moses tries to recruit help from his brother-in-law Hobab who at first rejects him he says Hobab you know this land we're heading out we need you to come with us join us we're traveling, you know the wilderness area much better than we do. He says, we're setting out to the place of which Yahweh said, I'll give it to you. Come with us. Come and we will do you good for Yahweh has promised good concerning Israel, verse 29. Then verse 30, but he said to Moses, I, I will not come, but rather will go to my own land and relatives He said, please do not leave us inasmuch as you know where we should camp in the wilderness and you will be as eyes for us so if so it will be if you go with us that whatever good Yahweh does for us we will do for you so he he's claiming certain something for Hobab trying to recruit him to come with him he's claiming the promises of Yahweh as motivation to try to get him to come along he says that the Lord has will do good to you for Yahweh has promised good concerning Israel he promised it all the way back to Abram good that he was going to do to his people and so he's laying out he's expressing he's demonstrating faith in front of the people saying God's promised that he's going to treat us good he's going to be a source of goodness for us to experience and he's saying you can join in on that if you want now we don't, we're not told whether he goes or not uh, there are different opinions on that but nevertheless Verse 33, they set out from the Mount of Yahweh three days' journey with the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh journeying in front of them for the three days to seek out a resting place for them. The cloud of the Lord, the cloud of Yahweh, was over them by day when they set out from the camp. Verse 35, then it came about when the Ark set out that Moses said, Rise up, O Yahweh, and let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. So that's when the ark set out. He made this sort of announcement, this chant. 
And then verse 36, when it came to rest, he said, return, O Yahweh, to the myriad thousands of Israel. So the idea of this ark leading them, this guy named T.W. Mann, I don't know him, but I saw him in reference. He, said, he pointed out that it was standard oriental practice for divine symbols or statutes to precede armies on a march. Well, we see that happening here. The, the ark leading them, guiding them, a divine symbol preceding the armies as they march. This chant that Moses just belts out, I can just imagine, rise up. He's calling upon Yahweh to come and lead his people. We hear these same words in Psalm chapter 68. It says, let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered. And let those who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish before God. But let the righteous be glad. Let them exult before God. Yes, let them rejoice with gladness. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song for him who rides through the desert. Hear that where we're at? We're in the wilderness in Numbers. The psalmist is talking about he who rides through the deserts, whose name is Yahweh, and exalt before him. And in that same Psalm 68, he also points out the chant when Moses is calling the Lord to return. He's, he's, see if you hear the similar words. Uh, in Psalm 68, 17, it says, The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands, the Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. Jacob Milgram, which one of the JPS commentary that I showed you earlier, he points out that according to this poem, he calls these words a poem from Moses, Israel's myriads of thousands on earth are the counterpart of the Lord's hosts in heaven. He also points out a rabbinic saying, that just as the divine presence rules above with thousands of myriads, so the divine presence rules below with thousands of myriads, which they would see in the huge number of the Israelites. So again, Moses is the leader of Yahweh's people. He's guiding them to display faith and trust in him as they follow Yahweh to the land of Canaan. Yahweh's promised good to his people that we heard about. And soon, very, very soon, we'll see how much they doubt that goodness and respond with wickedness chapter 11 now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord and when the Lord heard it his anger was kindled and the fire of Yahweh burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp something to point out that word that phrase the anger of the Lord the fire of the Lord, I'm sorry, the fire of Yahweh is a, is, a, is a repeated phrase you'll see in this section. So when you see that, some, a, word, a word or a phrase repeated, you should, you, should, you should perk up, you should pay attention, you should wonder why is it there, What's, what is the point of continuing to say this phrase or this word, and fire of Yahweh is one of those phrases that we'll see repeated in this section. But why is that? Exodus 15, 7, and in the greatness of your excellence, this is in the Psalm of Moses, Moses says to Yahweh, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger and it consumes them as chaff. We're going to see that this anger is, 
is directed towards God's people because of the way they're acting, because of their attitude, because of their complaining. It says that it, came, it arose up to the ears of Yahweh. Did you hear that? Did you see that? I'm sorry. The people became like those who complain in the hearing of the Lord, literally in the ears of the Lord. So he's taking notice. He's not unaware. He's not, as the cloud is leading them, he's not so far ahead that he can't hear who's grumbling in the back. It's not that scene. It's not that picture. He knows what's going on. He can hear everything because he knows their hearts. He doesn't just hear the complaining that's going on, but he knows the, the wicked hearts that are behind all that complaining. So he hears what's going on. And the fire of Yahweh, continuing verse 1, burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. Again, we've seen this fire of Yahweh being lashed out or released on his people. I got to cover in Leviticus a section of Nahab and Abihu, right? Remember what they did? Strange fire they offered before the Lord, and guess what happened? He came down with his own fire and consumed. We see that, we'll see that further in Numbers a little later on the sons of Korah in that situation where they're sinning against the Lord. And he comes down with fire and destroys people because of their rebellion against the Lord. But do you see God's mercy here? Do you see it even here? It says that it burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. He only consumed those who were on the outskirts of the camp. He didn't destroy them all. He spared many. And this was purposeful to serve as a warning to those who were spared. But not for long. Moses prayed to Yahweh. Verse 2, the people therefore cried out to Moses. And Moses prayed to Yahweh the Lord. And the fire died out. So the name of that place was called Tabera because the fire of Yahweh was burned among them. So this is the repeated phrase we're going to see. The people complain, Yahweh hears, they cry out to Moses, intercede, help us. Moses intercedes, Yahweh's fire relents. It's, it calms down. It, the wrath is abated. It, it's the mediator going before Yahweh and the people. And they realize that. They go to him. They say, cry out to the Lord. Save us, help us. And guess what? Yahweh heard Moses' prayer. Moses is this prophetic intercessor. His mediating cools the wrath of God amongst his people, against his people. And we're going to see this repeated again throughout Moses' leadership. But guess what? Verses 4 through 6 doesn't take long before they're grumbling again. Now the rabble who were among them, that rabble is a weird, weird word. It's not repeated anywhere else, but others say that that's just the non-Israelites who were with the people. That when they left and they fled Egypt, there were non-Israelites who went with Israel to be with them. So when the rabble were among them, had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, and the onions and garlic, but now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. And then he gives a description of what the manna was. Well, 
this rabble that had, had started showing greedy desires, as you see, seems to be that they had, had, they had, um, they had stirred up some of the Israelites to also complain and to cause trouble among God's people. They begin weeping. They begin crying out because they're not getting what they want. They want to go back to Egypt. Who will give us meat? Well, guess what? God had provided for them through manna, but they weren't content with it. They weren't content with his provision. They wanted Egypt's goods rather than God's good. Now, remember, God is the one who had promised good to them, and he was being good to them. Like, there's no way they can doubt it, but they were still saying, nope, it was better for us in Egypt, which we'll see again in verse 18. Verse 10, Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, each man at the doorway of his tent, and the anger of Yahweh, hear that phrase again? The anger of Yahweh, there it is repeated, was kindled greatly. That's an added phrase. It was kindled greatly, and Moses was displeased. So Moses said to Yahweh, why have you been so hard on your servant? Pity party Moses, here we come. And why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of all this people on me? Was it I who conceived all these people? Was it I who brought them forth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing infant to the land which you swore to their fathers? Verse 13, where am I to get meat to give all these people? For they weep before me saying, give us meat that we may eat. Too much of barbarians. I alone am not able to carry all these people because it's too burdensome for me. So if you're going to deal thus with, this, with me, please kill me at once. If I have found favor in your sight, and do not let me see my wretchedness. Well, Moses, it sure is, being, it sure is coming out. Your wretchedness is all over, and you can't cover it up. Everybody sees it, man. So Moses is joining the people in complaining against Yahweh. The people are weeping bitterly, and again, Yahweh's anger is stirred up greatly. So Moses gets frustrated. Did you hear the accusatory language Moses is laying upon the Lord, man? Did you hear that? We're not going to go back, but if you can just read it now, you'll see that he's directing all the blame back to him, saying, you did this, you, 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 you did this. And we would think by now, if anyone, if anyone was content with Yahweh, with the Lord's ways among his people, that it would be Moses. He knows him the best. He's met face to face. You would think if anybody's going to act right, it's going to be him. But even here, their leader can't keep it together. So what hope do the people have? Well, in light of this short narrative, question, do we gather that Moses is a sufficient leader for God's people? He's... He, is he to be elevated as a savior-like position? He is set apart. He is the servant of Yahweh. But again, we already see glimpses of even his self-admission that he cannot carry all the people by himself. He can't carry this burden, he says. It's too much. But I ask, is this, and I wonder if some of them ask, if they heard, is this someone that we can hang our hope on to bring us fully into Yahweh's promises? Just to ask us, it leaves us wanting, right? It leaves us lacking, begging, begging for yeah, a true and better prophet, priest, mediator. 
Verses 16 through 23 is Yahweh's response. He said, okay, gather 70 men from your elders whom you know. I'll come, I'll speak to you there, I'll take the spirit that's upon you, and I'm going to give it to them. That's key. The spirit of God was upon Moses. And he says, I'm going to share that power with others so they can assist you. Verse 19. Moses, Yahweh says, you want meat? I'm going to give you meat. You shall eat. He's talking about the meat. Moses is to tell this to the people. Verse 18, we see that. Yahweh's telling him, command to the people, say these things. Um, the end of verse 18 says, Therefore Yahweh will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, not two days, not five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days. Like, golly, okay. But a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. Why? Why are you doing this? I just asked for some meat. God didn't ask for 30, 20-something days of coming out of my nostrils. Why? I'll tell you why. Because you have rejected Yahweh who is among you and have wept before him. End of verse 20. Saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? They've rejected Yahweh. How else is he supposed to respond? Like everything's cool? Well, Moses provides a doubtful response yet again. Um, but Moses said in verse 21, So the people among whom I am, there's 600,000 on foot, and you've said I'll give them meat so that they may eat for a whole month? Should flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to be sufficient for them? Or should all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to be sufficient for them? And Yahweh said to Moses, Is Yahweh's power limited? phrase is also translated is Yahweh's hand too short my hand so short now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not this phrase the Yahweh's arm too short what's he talking about here it's repeated we see twice in Isaiah chapter 50 verse 2 Yahweh says is my hand very same words is my hand so short that it cannot ransom or have I no power to deliver? So again, another scene, they're questioning his power, and he's telling them, is my arm so short that it can't save? Isaiah 59, verse 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that he cannot hear. So he's just telling Moses, you doubting my power? Is my power limited? Have you forgotten who I am? What I did to the Egyptians that you saw against their gods all of that judgment, and you think my hand's too short to provide for you? So we see, verses 31 through, 20, through 35, the provision, but also the plague. Verse 31 says, Now therefore went a wind from Yahweh. That word wind is ruach, it's the same as spirit. The spirit, this wind of Yahweh, is bringing forth quail from the sea, it says, and let them fall beside the camp. And so, Quail is the provision of meat that Yahweh chooses to give to his people. And it says it's beside the camp, all around the camp, around on the outside where he already destroyed people. Now remember, outside the camp was the area of uncleanliness and death. It's what it represented. So we see this meat is leading the people 
outside of the inner circle where the tabernacle was, right? You see that? Away from the presence of God where he was camped at, not where the tabernacle was. And the anger of Yahweh was kindled against the people. There it is again. The Lord struck them. The very severe plague. And this place, verse 34, the place was called Kibroth Hatava because there they buried the people who had been greedy. That word Kibroth Hatava means graves of greediness because people died. So they called it graves of craving is another way. Greediness, craving, graves of lust. It's where they buried those who Yahweh had killed because of their greediness. Well, you think he has their attention now, right? Let's press on to chapter 12. Now Miriam and Aaron, anyone know who Miriam and Aaron are? Who's Miriam? This may be a harder one. You don't. Sister, right, Moses' sister. And Aaron? That's right, he's a selected, he's a leader of the high priest, the uh, priesthood. Now, they spoke against Moses, chapter 12, verse 1, because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? Uh-oh, a little jealousy going on. And, and the Lord, again, heard it. You see that? Yahweh heard it. Now, the man Moses was very humble, Verse 3, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. And suddenly Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron and to Miriam, you three, he calls them out, you, 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 you three, come out. Come out to the tent of meeting. So guess what? They better come. The three of them came out. Verse 5, then Yahweh came down in a pillar of cloud. There it is. Yahweh's coming down in what form? Of a cloud. That's his presence among his people. And he stood at the doorway of the tent, and he called Aaron and Miriam. When they came forward, they step up. He beckons them, summons them. They come up, and this is Yahweh's response to them as they've complained against Moses, verse 6. Hear now my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream, but not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. We'll stop there. Does that phrase stand out? He might thinking of anything when you hear that I'm not going to point it out right now but I hope so he is faithful in all my household verse 8 with him I speak mouth to mouth even openly and not in dark sayings and he beholds the form of the Lord why then were you not afraid to speak against Moses against my servant against Moses so the anger of Yahweh how many times I got to tell you there it is again the anger of Yahweh is key it's important burned against them and he departed he leaves them but when the cloud had withdrawn from over the tent that's right if Yahweh is leaving guess what it's leaving the clouds leaving just pointing that out the cloud when he had withdrawn over the tent behold Miriam was leprous as white as snow as Aaron turned toward Miriam behold she was leprous and Aaron said to Moses oh my Lord I beg you do not account this sin to us in which we've acted foolishly and in which we have sinned. Oh, do not let her be like the dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes from his mother's womb. Moses cried out to Yahweh. 
There he is, the intercessor, stepping up again to intercede as a mediator. Moses cried out to Yahweh saying, Oh God, heal, heal her, I pray. It's a short prayer. But, but the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, would she not bear her shame for seven days? Okay, I didn't, it's kind of odd. Let her be shut up for seven days outside the camp, and afterwards she may be received again. So Miriam was shut up outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on until Miriam was received again. Afterward, however, the people moved out from Hezroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. Well, that completes the reading of the text. So what's going on here? Miriam and Aaron, they're challenging Moses' leadership. For some reason, it's related to his wife, who he's married. Cushite woman. Some say this translation. Some translations that do say the Ethiopian woman. We don't say why they have a beef with her. Probably because she's not an Israelite. But we don't have any details. It just says that they spoke against him because of her. But then they quickly just say, "Has, Yah- has the Lord has Yahweh spoken only through you? Say, are you the only special one among us? I mean, what about us? God, doesn't God use us? Am I the main priest?" And she's a prophetess, as we, as we, uh, which is pointed out. I don't have the reference, but it, there's, a, there's a section, there's a verse that does say that Miriam was a prophetess among the people. But Moses is not just another prophet or priest. Again, he's God's chosen servant. You see how the Lord comes to his aid, defense, which we saw in verses 7 through 8. Though he's insufficient to lead a whole nation, as we just saw earlier, he's complaining he is nonetheless God's chosen instrument to serve his people. So he points out that he's faithful of my household. This one, he's different. Speak to him mouth to mouth. Op- not, it, not openly, not through visions, but face to face he hears me. He, he, he beholds the form of Yahweh, verse 8 says. Why in the world were you not afraid to speak up against them? So you would think when... when God curses Miriam with leprosy, the skin disease. You would think Moses could, Moses could just kick back and say, ha-ha, you get what you deserve, mess with me now. <laughs> Do it again, see what's going to happen. He got my back. <laughs> Aaron, take notes. Was that the attitude he had? No, what does he do? When, when Aaron comes to him, help, help her, Please. Could have sat back in his own self-righteousness and boasted in who he was and who Yahweh was to him and their relationship and how it was personal and special and they had something different going on nobody else had. No, he didn't do that. He immediately interceded on her behalf. Oh, God, heal her, I pray. Six words. Yeah, I did that. Six words. Very short prayer. He's passionate. He wants her to be healed but she still must be punished. So she's struck with leprosy. And she's, the Lord agrees to being shut out outside the camp for seven days, which is, we, we saw is the law in Leviticus 13.4 uh, concerning those who had leprosy. Now Miriam, how important was this woman? Pretty important. It says that the people didn't move on until Miriam was received again. So it kind of makes, kind of seems that she's a prophetess, we find out. She must have had some sort of big influence among the people. They wouldn't even set out until she was with him. So, Numbers chapters 9 through 12, there's the content. And what does all this mean for an ancient Israelite 
This was recorded for them. Why? For what reason? Well, it was important again, just to point out, for them to realize and believe that Yahweh, the Creator God, was always in their midst. His presence among His people signified His rule over their lives, over every part of their lives. They traveled according to His word. They lived according to His word. And on all of their travels, they could be confident that they were not without divine guidance in this wild, uncharted territory. This Redeemer, this Savior was with them. So Yahweh had promised Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that he would give their people this land. And the Lord was leading them back to that land of promise. And so they needed to see Moses' faith, which they did in Yahweh. He did have faith as he clung to the promises of God's goodness towards his people, that he had he was going to give them this land. He was going to lead them back. He demonstrated faith, but also doubt, which we see is typical among God's people. But this should have encouraged the people, Israelites, to also have faith. But sadly, many did not and suffered gravely for it. That's what they could have gotten from chapter 10. Chapters 11 through 12, when we enter into the complaining and grumbling section. I mean, what, what is the writer intending to teach as he weaves these stories together like he has in this section. Is there a specific focus? Well, we see some repetitions, right? The grumbling, the complaining, their attitudes, their sin. And we see God's response. And what was his repeated response to every one of their complaints? What was it? What's that phrase? The anger. He responded in anger towards them. They were reminded, people of Israel were reminded constantly of their ancestors' sin. It's quite often repeated throughout the writings and the prophets as you continue to read this book. And it's purposeful so that they would not repeat the same sins and kindle afresh the anger of Yahweh. Hear this from Deuteronomy chapter 9. Know then, this is Moses talking to the people, Know then it is not because of your righteousness that Yahweh your God is giving you this good land to possess. For you are a stubborn people. Imagine. Pastor Jordan stands up and says that to us today. You are a stubborn people. Remember, do not forget how you provoke Yahweh your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day that you left the land of Egypt until you arrived at this place. So they're in the land. He's reminded them of the way they acted. From that day, you've been rebellious against Yahweh. Again, at Tabera and at Massa and at Kibroth Hatava, you provoked Yahweh to wrath. So he's pointing out the specific location of Tabera, which we saw um, in chapter 11, verse 3. That was the location. So his... Historically, we see they're bringing, he brings up the past. Psalm 78. The psalmist, here's an example. From the writings, beginning of verse 14. Psalm 78, verse 14. Then he, the Lord, led them with the cloud by day. Again, he's writing history for the people. Listen, it's poem. It's poet in a poetic form, though. 
He led them with the cloud by day and all the night with a light of fire. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them abundant drink like the ocean depths. He brought forth streams also from the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. Yet they still continued to sin against him, to rebel against the Most High in the desert. There's a reference to the wilderness. By asking food according to their desire. Then they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock so that waters gushed out and streams were overflowing. Can he give bread also? Will he provide meat for his people? That's what they requested, right? We saw in Numbers. Therefore, Yahweh heard and was full of wrath. The fire was kindled against Jacob and anger also mounted against Israel. So he didn't forget to repeat to point out the anger of Yahweh when he records this for the people. As, he's, as the poet is writing this, that's key, that's important. Because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation, yet he commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven and rained down manna upon them to eat, gave them food from heaven. Man did eat the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he directed the south wind. When he rained meat upon them like the dust, even winged fowl like the sand of the seas, then he let them fall in the midst of their camp, round about their dwellings. You hear that? This is the same story we just read in Numbers. So they ate and were filled, and their desire he gave to them. Before they had satisfied their desire, while their food was in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them and killed some of their stoutest ones and subdued the choice men of Israel. In spite of all this, they still sinned and did not believe in his wonderful works. So he brought their days to an end in futility and their years in sudden terror. When he killed them, then they sought him and returned and searched diligent, diligent for God. And they remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, the redeemer. But they deceived him with their mouth and lied to him with their tongue, for their heart was not steadfast towards him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. But he, being compassionate, forgave their iniquity and didn't destroy them all. And often he retained his anger and did not arouse all of his wrath that he could have. Wow. Go back and read that again. I encourage you tonight, as, we're, as numbers is fresh on us, go back and read Psalm 78. And as it dials you back to numbers, worship the Lord. We see these things were written for the people to say, whoa. I need to avoid these things. The sin that, they, that our fathers committed that kindled the Lord's anger, I should avoid. Yet we still see that he was gracious towards them. All of his wrath and anger was not poured out. We don't have time, but the, that was an example from the writings. An example from the prophets is Ezekiel chapter 20. So if you go home, read some Ezekiel chapter 20. He's going to record some of the same events in Numbers. Again, after all this, you would think that folks would change their ways, don't you? But sadly, they don't. We don't. And yet still, God's gracious.
to them. We see his love in Psalm 136. How is his love connected to the wilderness? The psalmist says in Psalm 136, verse 16, To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Well, that's what it meant for them today. That's what, it, that's what some points of what numbers meant for the people and these narratives for them back then. What does it mean for us today, real briefly? I'll try. <laughs> um, the book of Numbers, again, it records this journey of the wilderness to a promised land. This establishes a theological motif for the biblical writers. It becomes a theme in the scriptures that represents our lives as Christians on earth. I mean, we too have been rescued from sin. Like they have been rescued from Egypt. We've been given eternal life. We've been given promises and big promises that we would inherit the land of the new creation. Now we're in between Christ's first and second coming in sort of a wilderness phase. And what we're not really, we're not really at home. The land around us, it's dry, it's arid, it's boring, distasteful when we look at the culture around us because of the new desires that we've been given as Christians that are fixed upon Jesus now and cannot be fulfilled or found in this world. And yet, as we travel through this wilderness of trials and suffering, we're called to have faith in God's provision and protection of us during this pilgrimage. And this, recalling his protection and his care for us, it fuels us to press on to the end. We grumble, we complain just like them, we know that. These exp- their experiences, like we see in 1 Corinthians 10, again, written for our instruction, they should caution us as we face similar temptations. Which is, for me, it seems like every single day I find something to complain about. I hate it. I murmur against the Lord, turning away from God. These examples, they should spark a fear in us of repeating these same sins, of living with bad attitudes, of complaining and bickering and grumbling and grouchiness against Yahweh and against his people, which is what we do. And it's so easy for us. It seems natural at times. But I encourage you, Grace Church, let's fight against that. Let's not be content with those common repeated sins, but let's fight to, be con- to conquer that selfishness and disregard for the Lord. A slew of references addressing complaining and grumbling I'll just name them. You can write them down. James 5, verse 9. Jude 1, verse 16. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9. Colossians 3, 13. And I'll read Philippians 2, which is hopefully it's familiar, but Paul says, Do all things without grumbling and disputing, so that you'll prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse, perverse generation. Hebrews points out Moses' relation to Jesus, comparing the two. Remember, Moses was Yahweh's chosen servant, but he's an insufficient savior. He doesn't make the cut, and guess what? Neither do we. Hebrews says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him. I'm going to ask you to remember that phrase if it it recalls anything in Numbers. He was faithful over his house. In Hebrews, it says, he was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was in all of his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. That's Jesus. He's been counted of more glory than Moses 
By just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone. The builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of his house as a servant. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house. Whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and boast of our hope firm until the end. He goes on to say in Hebrews, take care that there's not an evil unbelieving spirit. Again, warning, 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 warning. It's all warning for us to not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin like they had become. And it goes on to say in the end of Hebrews, they didn't enter the land because of unbelief. And guess what? That's the same with us. This is a deciding factor on whether we enter the land or not. Unbelief. Unbelief in all who Christ is and what he's done to save us. Doubting his love to keep us. And if such an unsatisfied spirit persists in us, it will keep us from enjoying the eternal bountiful land. Jesus is better than Moses. This much is true. But do we believe it? Will we complain to God about Jesus? That he's, he's not sufficient. He's not enough for us, just like Aaron and Miriam did against Moses. When we don't get our way, will we, will we run outside of God's boundaries of blessings to pursue our own happiness? Well, lastly, what can keep us from grumbling and complaining? What can make us content with God? We must, beloved, rid ourselves of all sin that so easily entangles us and run the race with our eyes fixed on Jesus alone. With our eyes constantly fixed on all the things that this world has to offer and never on Jesus, don't be surprised when we're not impressed with him. And this is what it boils down to. If we were honest with ourselves, we would often say, I'm, I'm bored with him. He doesn't excite me. He doesn't awe us. He doesn't blow us away like love at first sight, which is why we need to return to our first love. We need to electrocute the dullness back to a holy passion in God. And only when we truly delight in Him and Him alone will we be content and satisfied to the point where we won't be disappointed when things don't go our way. We won't be disgruntled when our plans are muffled or interrupted. Well, Grace Church, let's pray that we would learn the art of contentment. All of us, let's learn to be content by looking again and again to Jesus in the Scriptures and begging God each day to open our eyes to see His awesome majesty so that we're captivated by Him and truly satisfied in Him alone. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You for numbers. Help us to take heed to the instruction. Help us to put forth the effort to get to know You in this book as it reveals who you are. It reveals who we are. But it also reveals who the Savior is. It always points us to Jesus. And we're thankful for that. We pray that you would always give our eyes, give us eyes to see him. And we ask that you would help us as we dive into a new week starting tomorrow and we go to work and we're just surrounded by so much that distracts us from you. Lord, we want to be distracted by you from everything else. We ask that you would flip that that you would reverse that reality and cause us to be so captivated by your glory that, yes, we're productive in this world, but we're not slaves anymore to it. We're not bent out of shape when things don't satisfy our personal desires and plans and agendas, but we're submitted fully to your will and to your kingdom. So help us to do that. Help us to be content with you and you alone and the lot that you've given us and help us to help one another do that. We're journeying together through this wilderness. People weren't spread out. They were together as a people 
Help us as Grace Church to be a unified people by your spirit as you lead us through this wilderness, keeping our eyes fixed on the land of promise that you will give to us as we get to inherit all of your blessings that are ours through Jesus. We praise you and give you much thanks for fulfilling your promises and continuing to do so. Help us to be rooted and grounded in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.